Wow. Oh, hey there. My name's Ross, and I'm a bit of a nerd for all things nature. So a while ago, I started a passion project called well, nerdy about nature. It began as social media videos sharing cool fun facts and tidbits of wisdom about the natural world and has since evolved in this podcast that you're tuning into here. This project serves as means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it and so that we can all work together to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it's pretty dang neat, you know? I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy about nature. Come and take a nature walk with me We're gonna check out some really cool trees We're gonna hang around and talk about All those things in nature that we can't live without Let's go get nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, baby Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature Come on, let's get nerdy about nature Ah, what is up, fellow nerds? Welcome to the Nerdy About Nature podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Charlotte Daw, who works for the Wilderness Committee in BC, advocating and pushing for policy changes to help protect various ecosystems throughout the province. Now, her and I caught up to debrief on her time spent in Montreal for COP15, uh, the United Nations Conference on Biological Diversity. So the good, the bad, the ugly, and all that comes with these giant international meetings to try to create some sort of global plan for addressing biodiversity loss and maintaining its health into the future. So we talk all about biodiversity in BC and Canada at large, um, some policy hurdles and shifts taking place. And then towards the end, we kind of divert to another complex topic, that of glyphosate, which you might know commonly as Roundup, um, and how it's being used in massive quantities all over our public lands and forestry and agriculture, despite some pretty well-known harmful impacts it has on all sorts of life, ours included. So lots to go over and unpack in this episode. It's going to be a great one. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to let you know that there are a couple changes happening to this podcast that I'm pretty stoked about. So... I'm almost a year into these things now, and while it's been going well, um, I'm still figuring things out and tweaking it along the way. You know, it's constant evolution. Change is a good thing. So if you hang around at the end of the podcast, I will chat more about what I'm hoping to do with it, and it would be awesome to get your involvement. But there is one thing I wanted to mention up front here, and that is, as that most of you are probably aware, this podcast and the whole Nerdy About Nature project is an independent passion project that's made possible thanks to all you great, grand, and amazing folks who support this project on on Patreon, you know, the nutrients to the nerdiness, the fungi to the facts, if you will, which is awesome. And I'm so dang appreciative of all of you. I couldn't do it without you. Recently, though, I've got enough support through Patreon where I'm now at a bit of a point where I'm able to kind of spread things out and give back and spread that love around so that we can all thrive, kind of like a healthy forest ecosystem, you know? Which means that starting with this episode, I'll be using some of those Patreon funds to make a donation to a nonprofit of my guest's choice, which is pretty dang exciting. And I'm hoping that as this whole project continues to grow, I can keep giving more and more and working to uplift folks doing so many great things around the world. So hang around to the end of this episode to hear who Charlotte is going to give the inaugural donation to, as well as more insight on things happening in this podcast space and how you can be involved. Now, without any more dilly-dallying, let's get into this chat with Charlotte to hear all about her work with the Wilderness Committee, Biodiversity in BC, ridiculous old, established, and outdated laws, crazy legal loopholes, policy failures and successes, how glyphosate has become so commonplace, and how it might be contributing to creating a handmaid's tale type world, and much, much more. So here we go. One, two. Microphone check. 
Yeah. So when I first got these, I was like beatboxing into them. Like, oh, this sounds sick. That's so fun. <laughs> it's like right in your ears. Well, uh, you can do that also on your spare time. You can have a beatbox. I started kind of throwing some beatboxing stuff into the beginning of these podcast episodes every now and then. But then I was just like, this is just silly. That's cool. What am I doing? No, that's cool. Is it though? Yeah. Is it cool? Yeah. yeah. White guy beatboxing? Uh, maybe not. Maybe if you ask like your guests to. Yeah. No, I didn't mean it. Starting next, starting next. No, no, go ahead. So welcome uh, to the Nerdy About Nature podcast, Charlotte. You Thanks. are um, the first person I've interviewed in 2023. I try to do them all outside, so it's cold. Thank mm -hmm. you for joining me. Uh, would you like to start off by beatboxing a bit for us? Okay, yeah, sure. Um <clears throat> Nice. Thanks. <laughs> I worked on that the whole way up here. Kind of like a, a pretty quick tempo. Like Yeah. We yeah. go fast. Yeah. Fast dancing. It's kinda of like Kim kinda of gave me polka vibes. Okay. Good. That's fine. <laughs> All right. So um why don't you go ahead and, and introduce yourself for real? Thank you for beatboxing. Appreciate you entertaining that. You're idea. welcome. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, that's a tough question. I'm gonna introduce myself. My name is Charlotte. Um yeah, I uh, I work for the Wilderness Committee. I'm the conservation and policy campaigner. I work on wildlife, wilderness protection issues, um, trying to hold governments accountable, keep eyes on industry in the forest, um, and uh, yeah, try to promote some like good change to protect wildlife and wilderness. Yeah. And how long have you been with Wilderness Committee for? Um, six years. Yeah. It's a decent stint of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ever since I moved out here. Yeah. Are you from BC originally? Or? No. So I grew up in um, uh, Treaty 6 territory, Edmonton. Uh, yeah. I grew up next to a pond full of frogs, um, <laughs> which was amazing. I had a really good childhood out there. Um, and then I remember like one night the 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 like I used to fall asleep to the sound of them like croaking frogs croaking in the pond and one night it, it just like went away it was gone the pond got drained and I think like that was the beginning of why I'm like even here or like doing this work oh interesting it's, like how intense that was and then so yeah I moved out here six years ago Coast Salish Territories is where I'm at now in so-called Vancouver so yeah yeah frogs are a good gateway drug to environmental oh, yeah. stuff <laughs> I was I was super into amphibians when I was a kid. I don't have yeah. anything, any traumatic stories like that though. You must. Why? I mean, yeah, maybe. I probably <laughs> That's do. So sad that I just automatically think no, that you I do. No, I mean, you're right. Like, I mean, thinking back to like where I grew up, like it's mm -hmm. it's all changed so radically. Yeah. It's just like fucking just suburban sprawl. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there are stories that I'm like not even aware of there. And yeah. I think as a kid too, like I was. Um, not checked out, but just distracted. And it's only been like, as I've been older and been able to like look it back on things and reflect it and being like, wow, this like we used to play in that. Like that's toxic. Yeah. This is like, yeah. we used to like literally play in a, it was like a stormwater <laughs> pond. Yeah. And it was like, oh, we just thought it was like a chill little pond, but it's like, it's like literally everything. Toxic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we used to like, Th that was the same for me where we grew up. We were kind of the first in this like suburban area and like it bit away, uh, you know, the wilderness there. And we were like, my family was a part of that bite. Um, so I think when you're so young, you're just like, you know, the, f the frogs are gone. The pond is gone, but you don't know if it's right or if it's wrong. And it like you, f you feel it, but you don't know. I don't know. And then there's just like a loss. There was a huge loss for me from that. But 
you like me and my brothers never we never gave up trying to play in like toxic things like we like there was a mud pit outside of our house that we spent a significant amount of our time in like dead I remember one time I jumped in there's just this dead duck beside me I was like what's <laughs> that's what gnarly. are you doing here yeah <laughs> yeah dead mm. from natural causes hopefully <laughs> oh my god like I don't I don't know I I didn't do a like report yeah, yeah an I autopsy on yeah, it yeah no I didn't <clears throat> yeah time. I mean and it's such a double-edged sword too because like obviously with development like we all grew up in houses that were developed at one point like whether or not your house is built new or built like 30 40 50 years before you moved in mm-hmm. 100 years um but yeah it's it's just tough to see change happening so radically um, yeah I feel you feel powerless yeah and yeah. it makes me feel old yeah Totally. Especially recently, like seeing yeah. places that I've seen like change drastically in like a five year span. Yeah. I feel like I'm becoming that crotchety old man in like all those stereotypical movies like, oh, are you dang kids? I'm like, oh my God, uh-huh. this is nuts. It's you're becoming that. I'm that's becoming you. that. I'm trying to stay positive. <laughs> hey, that's cool. I mean, like if you talk about shifting baselines and I think like, I don't know how old you are, but I feel like we're maybe of the same generation. Um, yeah. Like the 90s is like I there was still there was still quite an abundance I don't know relatively I guess but like the declines we've seen since the 90s in wildlife and wilderness is just like oh my god it's just so in your face and especially when you yeah when you were kind of if you did spend a lot of time growing up in the wild in the wilderness and stuff then you you can see that like so clearly now mm-hmm. yeah and and within that there's just become there's such a disconnect between society and those outdoor spaces like when i grew up <clears throat> like outside of seattle area in washington there was like you know there were forests like between all the houses and between like there was a, a really amazing forest behind my school my elementary school that i have like some of my most vivid memories like playing in those woods um and nowadays I don't know why, probably for like legal reasons or something, but like kids aren't even allowed to play in those woods anymore. It's all fenced off. If those woods even still exist, it's probably actually been developed at this point. But like just the fact that like you're getting kids, wow. elementary school, I don't know how old is that, like six, seven, eight years no old? I have no idea. To, I'm so bad at that. Yeah. yeah. How old, however old <laughs> kids are in elementary school, yeah. you're cutting them off from like this, this recess time mm-hmm. this playtime out in like natural spaces and confining them to either like i mean in in washington or in that district i don't even think you're allowed to go outside anymore if it's raining because too many kids just don't have jackets and get hypothermic oh wow so it's like you're either in the gymnasium if it's <gasps> raining which is like 280 days a year or you're playing outside on like a plastic playground wow like, so th- it's really difficult That's, for people to even yeah. build those connections these days. Yeah. And like, especially if it's then like an organized, like outside time, here right. we go. Like it's an adventure, but it's like, that, uh, yeah. When, when we were growing up, that was just like the default. Like I go home, I, I didn't do, I like, I didn't, I like kind of played Halo a little bit, but <laughs> whatever, yeah. a tiny bit, Halo but like, one. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would go on my brother's accounts and I would team kill everyone. And then they would scream at me. Uh, no, but mo- like 99% of my time was just outside. I would walk home from school. I would go directly to the forest. Like, I don't even know what we did, but we spent so many hours just like, I think being bored is one of the best things because your mind just gets going. And especially when you're outside in the woods and you're bored, you're like, what are we going to do? And then you can do anything. And like, but now there's just like so many options available to kids uh, that can just fill that boredom. And uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You create your own fun out there. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's what kind of got you into environmental work stuff. 
Um, I mean, that's what I link it to. I try to think back about like what, why I'm this way. Cause it's, it's been this way since I can remember. And so I just have this like deep love for animals and just like, I like, f- I really feel their hurt. Um, and then obviously I learned pretty quickly if you want to protect animals, you have to protect their habitat. So it, yeah. It what just... kind of work do you do at Wilderness Committee? You do a lot of policy stuff, a lot of advocacy. Yeah. So, um, Hmm. Your campaign. I do a lot of stuff. Yeah. What's that mean? Cam- you don't know what that is. I mean, like, I'm, I'm just <laughs> Whenever I tell someone I'm a campaigner, they're like, okay. <laughs> so, all right. Um, no, I, um, there, there's multiple ways I go about my work. Uh, some of it is policy, and it's sort of like looking at the laws and policies we have and doing our best to use those to protect wilderness and wildlife. Um, not so shockingly, we don't have a lot of things we can use to protect. Um, even endangered species, for instance, like in BC, um, it's entirely legal to bulldoze the habitat home to breeding, breeding caribou, like calving grounds. Um, that's fine <laughs> under, under BC law. So it's, but then, you know, then there's the federal species at risk act. So it's kind of looking at like the different ways we can sort of pull levers to protect wildlife that need it. Um, and then we also do a lot of like on the ground work and field work investigations and, uh, looking and looking at what industry is doing in the forest and, and bringing attention to it. Like hopefully we get there before it happens and we're able to stop it. Sometimes we're successful. Um, sometimes we're not. Um, yeah. Does that? Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and when I, I guess it wasn't the last time I saw you, but like I saw you back in December at COP15, um, which is a pretty big thing. And you and I had talked before that. We did a couple uh, quirky, fun nerdy about nature selfie videos about what the wilderness is wilderness committee was working on um i guess going into cop what were you what were your ambitions what were you hoping to kind of like impact oh my gosh oof it was yeah i i think like i don't i don't think i had any i like i never thought like me going to cop is gonna like fix the framework i'm gonna change the framework no i so i kind of knew like i'm just there to observe and do what i can to help um And sort of like, I think my main thing that I wanted to do is call out the bullshit. Um, You know, we were just coming coming off of COP27 when we heard that there was a lot of like fossil fuel influence at at, at the conference. And just to clarify, COP27 was the climate one. COP15 was the biodiversity. Yeah. So COP15 is sort of, yeah, the biodiversity conference. Um, The last one we had was the Aichi targets, which they set in. 2010 uh, for targets that were supposed to be met in 2020. Um, And so in 2020, they were going to do a new, like reset the targets, kind of come up with a new framework for the next decade. But then COVID happened, so they had to delay it. So it happened this year instead. So that's what COP15 is, but it's all related to biodiversity and how to protect biodiversity. Whereas COP27 is climate change and like focusing on climate. I mean, they're directly linked, but yeah. Yeah. When it comes to biodiversity, I know there was a lot of issues that were um, coming up before then, like issues regarding Sarah, the Species at Risk Act here mm-hmm. in Canada, mm-hmm. um, issues regarding like how <clears throat> like national parks are created and how protection measures go into effect. Um, do you want to kind of give an overview of how those systems kind of operate currently, both in BC and on a federal level? Yeah. So one of the things that like as we were going into COP um, and, you know, the, fe- the federal government's making all these promises and governments around the world are getting ready to come and commit to these targets. It's like, if you don't have the legal framework 
to implement these changes, it's not going to happen. Like the colonial laws that we have in Canada are just that like they're they're colonial, but they also assign like life giving forests to like corporate entities. So if you can't address sort of our legal structure and like who gets to make decisions, why decisions are made, we're not going to be able to address or to actually achieve the targets. If that makes sense, like you. Yeah. And then so that was one of the issues with Sarah is just like this law is com- completely lacking um, and we're not going to meet targets for extinction when we have this federal species at risk act that only automatically applies to uh, federal land, you know, like in BC um, federal, like non-federal land is 94% of the land base. So if we're trying to halt extinction in Canada, BC has the most species at risk out of every other province and territory in Canada, but the only law that we have to stop extinction only automatically applies to 6% of the land here in BC. On the rest of the 94% of the land base here, there's no legal tool to save an endangered species habitat from getting cut down. So that's kind of like what I was trying to address. Like we can't, I mean, I feel like people are just over cop because they go there, governments make all these promises and like nothing actually fundamentally changes. And I think the world, uh, so many people are aware that we need like a systemic change and we need to value things differently. And you're not going to get that from targets that government show up without any law, like without any ref- actual reform. They are just going to say they're going to do these things and then they won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, kind of standard politics at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> so you're saying BC has the highest number of species at risk within Canada, which is on 94% of the land in BC, but there's no law within BC to protect those species? Yeah, exactly. Because the federal law only applies to federal lands. Yeah, it only automatically applies. So there's there's like this, I guess first, first so BC doesn't have a species at risk law. Right. So on 94% of the land here in BC, uh, that is non-federal, if a species at risk is living there, it doesn't have automatic protection from being harmed or having its habitat destroyed. Mm-hmm. Which is what we're seeing with like critically endangered mountain caribou and northern spotted owl. Yeah, exactly. And so like, like let's say forestry company who's out there um, surveying for where they want to put their cup blocks, there's no requirement for them to even look, like do a species at risk survey. If they do, uh, if they do cite, like see a species at risk or if they happen to do a species at risk survey, they don't have to report what they found to the government. And then even if they did, the government has no legal like tool to stop them yeah. from doing it anyway. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's how that's, that's, so, <laughs> that's backwards. Like how did it even get that way? I know. I'm glad you think that. I feel like every time I talk about this, people are bored, but well, cause like, what's the point of having a law if there's no way to like enforce it or an actor, if it like, is it all just like smoke and mirrors and like pretty language that like does nothing? It's really tough. Cause like the way, like when you read the federal species at risk act, which I'm sure most people have. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I've got it memorized, actually. Good. Yeah, yeah like the 94 pages. Yeah. But when you read, I actually have read most of it, but when yeah. you read it, you're like, this sounds great. But it's the nuances and sort of like these legal like loopholes and just vague language of the law have made it be completely useless when it comes to actually applying the law. So like I said, the province has an obligation. So the province actually, so they have an obligation to protect species at risk on non-federal land. Um, however, the federal government is the body that's required 
to make sure that the province is protecting critical habitat on non-federal land. When they fail to protect critical habitat on non-federal land, the feds are supposed to step in and issue a safety net order or an emergency ed- or an emergency order. The safety net order has never been used in the history of the law, and the emergency order has only been used twice. So it's like not in BC though. Not in BC. Never in BC. So it's like the federal government does have a legal obligation to make sure that the province is protecting critical habitat, but they don't do that. And then so pro- the province knows that they're not going to do that, so they just carry on with business as usual. Like, but within that, don't they have to be doing some sort of like biodiversity monitoring or something like before they start a project, as they start a project and afterwards? I mean, I know that that's how it works around waterways with like certain fish habitat. Um, It can be. I mean, it depends what industry we're talking about. If it's logging, like it can be built into their forest stewardship plans, like their their wildlife, the values that they want to keep. But in terms of like monitoring and reporting, it's pretty dismal. And even when. Even when like an industry is known to be actively destroying species at risk habitat, like it's it's not enough to stop it. I mean, we see that a lot with spotted owl habitat. We saw that with like speckled belly lichen, like the trees that like this endangered species was literally growing on were allowed to be cut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we we just we really need a law in BC that can protect species at risk and their habitat and sort of just like. I would love to see a law made in in a way that's like, I mean, it's a colonial law right now. If we're going to create a law, it will be a colonial law, but in a way that could be from a rights-based approach um, and in a way that sort of like adds a filter for companies to just propose better projects. Like it would be amazing if it's kind of how the U.S. endangered species law works pre-Trump. It was the board that approved permits uh, within critical habitat for species at risk would rarely ever like would rarely ever give a permit out. So companies just ended up being like, okay, well, we might as well just stay out of the critical habitat because we're not going to get it approved. So there was like this built in level of like the onus is on the company to just like do better to begin with. Right. And so when you're saying like companies operating on non-federal land in BC have an obligation to protect habitat, it's like, obligation but like that's even that's prioritized because it's like obligation while also meeting economic demands first and foremost oh yeah every time yeah yeah like when we and and it's so it's not even the companies that have the obligation it's the province that has the obligation to the companies so when you talk about like a company having a management plan that may or may not consider critical habitat yeah that's entirely up to them it's like like that's like their branding, like, oh, well, we are going to operate in a way that protects habitat versus yeah. another company that's... Yeah. So it's completely up to the company. There's not like an overarching like mandate from BC yeah. being like, you can't... Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's, this is a crazy I know. talk. I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. This wow. is why we've seen like so like the extinction of six herds of Southern Mountain Caribou, right? Is just like these... Um, yeah, these laws that we have just don't even like they don't even consider species at risk. And and then you have the unduly like unduly right. clause. Right. That's another part of it. But um, so even Within if you the had. Practices. Yeah. So yeah. even if you had, you know, some habitat values, like let's say it was like an ungulate winter range you wanted that the, like we wanted to establish within a harvesting land base that can only harvest or that can only impact up to I think it's four percent. Uh, for wildlife values, yeah, five yeah. percent total. 
So I think it's I think it's less than that. I think it's three percent for land and water, like um visual aspects and stuff and hydrology yeah. is like one they've included in that, but I think it's only two percent for biodiversity. For, yeah. yeah. Don't so then quote the, me on that. That's yeah. just but yeah, it's five percent basically. Hey, I just wanted to pop in here and fact check this real quick. So the retention caps are actually 4% for visual characteristics, hydrology and ecology, which are things like green veils that hide clear cuts from roadways and passerbys and riparian protection zones, and only 2% for biodiversity. That means that if you, a license holder to log a section of land, want to preserve part of it for biodiversity features alone, you can legally only save up to 2% of that from being logged and only up to 4% for things like protecting salmon-bearing streams, totaling up to a meager 6% of an area that is allowed to not be logged in order to meet values other than timber, while the remaining 94% must be logged as required by law. Crazy, huh? Now, this ridiculous legal framework still exists even with the removal of this unduly clause that we're talking about here, though the removal of this clause does open the potential to changing this framework in the future, which folks are currently working on doing right now. Yeah. So then you're like, even if you wanted to protect more mm-hmm. wildlife values, you actually can't under our laws. Yeah. And then it f- just goes back to like, the only the only use we're looking at a forest like the only like the priority is corporate profits right that's it and recently in bc they did make a change to that to get rid of the unduly act which is just worth mentioning um even though that's like it's still just it's wording in like a legal document that still doesn't even really take effect into for like another two years so it doesn't impact anything directly but it's basically like allowing people to make management plans that can unduly, quote unquote, affect the um, economic returns of a timber harvest um, in order to consider other values such as biodiversity, more than 5%. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good change. Like, I mean, if you talk to people working in like the protect, like wildlife and wilderness protection from like the 80s, 90s, like they just hammer on this clause because like without, without removing unduly, like every, like forestry, FERPA, like just kind of trumps every other law. So it's, if without removing that it just puts such a barrier and so it's nice that that's gone now but like you said like it only applies once a company does their new plans which comes every five years the companies can voluntarily uh (laughs) yeah voluntarily (laughs) yeah which they won't but right did you read about the the thing happening out in revelstoke area where uh there's a logging company whose name I can't remember, but I wish I could because I want to give them credit for it. They're like willingly like, like, okay, we have like these blocks that we've got set aside. We have the rights to log them. We can log them. We have like another three years, I think, to log them. Um, But there's critically endangered old growth like within our blocks that we don't want to log. But then the province, because of like stumpage fees, like, okay, you don't have to log that, but you still owe us the stumpage fees as if you had logged that. So it's actually costing this company who's genuinely trying to do good and not log old growth. It's costing them more money to protect it. Yeah. Because the government's, yeah, it's just like some the government's laws are so backwards. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like, they just favor industry of, over every other degree. Like, yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. 
So the company whose name I couldn't recall here in this conversation was Downey Timber, based in Revelstoke, BC. And I just wanted to give them a kudos for at least trying to make changes to their methodology here in order to preserve old growth forests. And this whole situation is just a great example of how incredibly short-sighted, broken, and myopic the policy and laws of BC still are when it comes to forestry. Here, you know, we have a small family-run timber mill that's trying to do the right thing and evolve their practices to be more ecologically sound, to be in line with the values of their community and defer this old growth forest to the local First Nations. And yet the BC government is coming in and requiring them to pay for not logging that old growth. I mean, that's ridiculous. News articles about this have broken out calling for some sort of leniency here. But as of right now, recording this podcast, nothing has really happened. Although the Ministry of Forest has expressed that they, quote, appreciate the challenge of this situation. So that's something. Yeah, we just need a total transformation of all of our laws. <laughs> yeah. Easy. Yeah, Has there been any movement on the BC Species at Risk Act law or anything like that? Yeah, there has been actually. So in yeah. 2017, um, Horgan announced, like they actually, the BC NDP like campaigned and got in on promising this like species at risk law. And then they promised a lot. They did promise. <laughs> yeah. Long list. Um, sightsee. Yeah. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Old growth, dang. You guys are going to make that uh, happen. Yeah. Thanks for your votes, kind people. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, yeah, so this they like they hosted these public consultations. Like, uh, industry went, uh, you know, they, they were engaging with First Nation leaders on this law. Uh, I I showed up to the, uh, the consultation, um, the industry day. They had like everyone in the room and um, we were like well on our way of to, to developing a law. And I guess we were two weeks away. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Spockus. Oh, yeah. great. Bald Eagle. Holly okay. Lucocephalus for those that didn't <laughs> see it. There was a bit, pretty big juvenile one that flew over just a moment oh, ago. Sweet. Sorry not to derail you. Uh, I derailed myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this is back in 2017 you're saying? Yeah. yeah. So, so we did a lot of work. Like everyone did a lot of work. Even people within the Ministry of Environment did a ton of work. This law was so they say two weeks away from being released for public consultation. So they like had it done. And then John Horgan, just like at this press conference in Northern BC was just like, yeah, there's no law coming in the foreseeable future and just kind of like pulled it out from everyone. And the work just got shut down. Um, so since then we've been like advocating that it gets picked back up. Is there like, I want to ask why. Okay. So it's all like, did he have a reason? At that time is when the Caribou Partnership Agreement was happening. I'm not sure if you knew about that. Not at the time, but I, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So it's like, it's basically an agreement between West Moberly, Soto First Nations and the federal government in BC to protect caribou habitat. And it's an amazing agreement. One of the biggest, I'd say the biggest agreement since like the Great Bear Rainforest. It's huge. Um, but there was a lot of like industry, like industry pushback from that and fear mongering and like racism that was sparked in the North was so bad and the government didn't do anything to address it. And so I think the government just got really like nervous. And I think he just like, I think he just like set it on a whim and then just like backtracked and like, yeah, I think, but I think it was ultimately, they were scared of having the partnership agreement happen at the same time as announcing this, um, Yeah. The species at risk act because of the backlash yeah. potentially with it because, from industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was just like a hypersensitive mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how the conversations have shifted in BC to like, because of 
the sudden fascination it seems with politics to go towards like these undrip measures like bringing in the nations which is like so important and impactful but i feel like because of that they're like almost stopping any sort of like level of restriction that could happen from like the colonial governments and like and yeah like it, i believe that there should be like indigenous management on these lands and like there sh they should be working in partnership but like and i i understand that shift is happening but i feel like it's almost happening um to a point when it's like it's doing the bigger system like a disservice because it's like we should we should be able to protect before we like manage or before like as we transition like the idea of like not protecting it and then transitioning so mm -hmm. that by the time the transition yeah. occurs everything's already gone is like that yeah. just seems again ass backwards like yeah and they i mean like they they really like the bc government picks and chooses when they're they're gonna like listen to first nation leadership like there's been a bunch of nations that are like hey like we want to do deferrals but we like want to change it this way or we want to talk about the maps and like let's shift it a bit um or are like hey we have this like um ipca proposal <laughs> that we've had for years and you're not talking we can't even get a meeting with you um and then yeah i mean there's a lot to say there and i mean i've had conversation with conversations with folks from like uh, uh, Soto First Nation who are saying like at, like now it's kind of become this thing where like the BC government will sort of like blame indigenous leadership on their changes so that like they're the ones that get the, the backlash. Exactly. They're just which scapegoating is so messed it. Up. Yeah. <laughs> like there was like a hunting reform they did uh, which was like a, a decent like policy the BC government put in to just help protect moose populations but they didn't listen to Soto First Nations and they were like, we want to protect local hunting rights here. Uh, but BC ended up allowing like international hunting to still come in. And they were like, no, that's not what we wanted. Because but there's industry in that. Because there's, there's money, money there's yeah. industry. And then um, when they announced the plan, they were like, this is this was done in like partnership with Soto First Nation. And they're like, and then so they got all the backlash from like pe the locals in the area. So it's just like. And yeah, like on the picking and choosing subject, it's funny to hear that. And then at the same time, like up in Wet'suwet'en, and they're like, you're like, there are salmon spawning in this creek. You're digging under it for this pipeline. We've mm -hmm. told you we don't want the pipeline. Yeah. And they're just like, we're not listening to you because it's inconvenient yeah. to us for our agenda at the time. But it really, I mean, it's just, yeah, it really like. Once you hear these stories, it kind of just makes, I'm like, is anything you say about reconciliation actually like legitimate? Like, do you actually mean any of it or is it all just for show? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I guess, so moving out of COP, like what, what happened at COP? Like, was there any good takeaways? Like, yeah. Um, actually, what were some of the things that we achieved? You, you were there, you were there like three weeks. <laughs> for a few years. <laughs> yeah. You've aged. I have. <laughs> Oh my god, like, cough was intense. It's like interstellar. <laughs> you come out like 20 years later. <laughs> like, oh my god. I'm just trapped there. Yeah. People were like, when are you going home? I'm like, mm, February. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just wandering the streets being like, hello? Yeah. No, I was there for a long time. It was intense and I just like, yeah, it was a lot. There was a lot of good things that happened. There was a lot of... um yeah, I mean, yeah, what do you want to know? You want to know the good, the bad, the... All, all of it. Okay. Let's, let's hear your breakdown. Yeah. I mean, it was weird. It was like, it was going to like a funeral, a high school reunion, like a wedding. 
<laughs> it was like a mix because like all of your friends are there and you're meeting so many amazing people from like acro across the world that are just like so in this fight and like directly like lives on the line from this fight like Papua New Guinea folks that are just like yeah like we gotta fix this um and you know you have people from like the Amazon like people from the Amazon there um and it was so there was like I feel like two parts to cop like you could have done it two ways there's like the negotiation space, which is like very high level policy, like wonky. You can go sit in and listen to negotiators from around the world discuss for days about a bracket around the word the <laughs> like it's you can do that <laughs> or you can go kind of like immerse yourself into that like the sort of grassroots activisty world that was happening there. You can go to like um the indigenous pavilion that was put on uh, that hosted like incredible talks from indigenous leaders around the world talking about like how to move forward um, and overcome this biodiversity crisis. So it's like, you could kind of, yeah, you could, you could do one or the other. I kind of did a mix of both and I got really burnt out, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the negotiation space was, was interesting. It's like, so, I don't know if this is interesting to people. I think it's interesting, but let's hear it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> governments will like pick a negotiator and they'll like send that negotiator or whatever to the to these negotiation rooms. And like the framework is twenty three targets and some goals. Um, it started out with nine hundred brackets, and so like the point of negotiations is to get rid of the brackets so like everything and you're working so there's 196 negotiators advocating on what they want for their country and you're trying to come to like they're trying to come to an agreement on the the entire framework so the goal is the to document yeah the yeah. document so the goal is to, like remove the the brackets so it's and start the brackets are like uh like for example it'd be like oh we want to stop doing this and then bracket Unless so-and-so objects or something like, yeah, like, like yeah. it's, yeah. Um, by 2030 mm -hmm. would be in a bracket. Like right. maybe someone's like, let's not have a target. Right? right. Like, so people are negotiating on just like the nuances of the, uh, wording and like the wording is so important. Like there's certain words that if you like slide in there can totally derail like nature positive. <laughs> right so like what a great slogan uh, yeah <laughs> everything's good <laughs> if it's nature positive right yeah forest plantations are nature positive yeah i can i can talk a little bit about that after but yeah so so anyways they got it they got from 900 brackets to 1400 down to zero and then once it was down to zero is when the framework was finalized and then they all voted on it um and some of the targets were really good so um the biggest, I think the, the biggest win is Target 22 mentions the full protection of environmental human rights defenders, which no one really focuses on. But to me, that's like, if we can, if we can make governments uh, accountable to this target, that could mean like the removal of like police force uh, to like protect ind industrial projects. So like in Wet'suwet'en and like Fairy Creek and the Amazon, like if you're saying all of a sudden like indigenous folks and like folks fighting to protect um, like land from industrial projects are actually protected under this target now, then we can stop the, yeah, the use of like police and like the violent removal 
of people from the land. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, that's just like an international agreement, like you know, yeah. wink, wink, nudge, yeah. versus like actual laws and policy in place. Yeah, totally. And that's, I mean, this is all just that. Like the whole framework is essentially could be nothing unless it's implemented in law or, um, or, or yeah, or countries are held accountable to them. Uh, but I think there is value in like having the framework because it gives us something we can like sort of leverage and, and call the government, uh, like call them out on. And especially like target 22, if we were to just ask the federal government, well, do you support target 22? Yes or no. If they say yes, it's like, okay, now we have like, now we know that like what you're doing is against this global agreement that you've committed to. And you said you're going to do this. And then if they say no, then they're, yeah. And then they're breaking the agreement they committed to. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, it, it just helps for, I mean, accountability and just right. like having something to grab onto. Has there been any movement in that direction since then? I guess that was only two months ago, but. Yeah. Well, so at COP. Um, Almost three months ago now. Yeah. So when I was uh, at COP, we actually had a, a presentation uh, and Minister Gobo showed up during it and announced that he would be implementing the targets into law via a accountability act yeah so we're kind of like figuring out what that's going to look like right now um and that hasn't been yet proposed or anything uh i haven't heard of an accountability act oh yeah 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 well he he just kind of like said it mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um but they want to move quick on it um so basically an action plan comes first this is something all countries have to do is go home and like make an action plan to implement the targets uh and then and then the next step is, um, yeah, Gobo was like, we're going to make them accountable in law. So, like, we're going to see what that is. And we're we're kind of working with a group of, of organizations across Canada to, like, get the targets actually in law. But then that also leaves, I mean, begs the question of, like, okay, that's federal law. What about the provinces and territories? Right. Which gets back to the same Sarah issue. Yes, exactly. It's like if the federal law explicitly states that it only takes effect on federal land, then all of a sudden all of the non-federal land is out of their jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of one of the things that I always bring up. I'm like, you need to be working with provinces and territories to implement the targets. Interesting. Yep. One of the targets, like you asked about some of the good things that happened, and I forgot to mention this, but 30 by 30 is one that was good. But I think like, again, without like the law reform and stuff, it's just like kind of sectioning off a space of wilderness or, you know, like marine area that sort of like operates under the assumption that like humans on the landscape is fundamentally harmful. You know, like we need to like protect and like close off 30% of the land so it can like just be there for it, like it's itself. And I think I just wanted to bring this up because this is what a lot of the indigenous folks were also saying at the forum. Like we need to just say like, A, what happens to the rest of the 70% of the land and water that's not protected? Will industry just hit it harder? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Um, But it's like. It just, yeah, it, it operate it, it assumes that like humans can't have a relationship with the land that is positive and, um, and that's like not true. Like the industrial economy that we're in now is like relatively new. Like I always point to caribou for this example, like caribou have been living with like indigenous peoples across, uh, this land f- for like hundreds of thousands of years, like co-evolving together and like relying on each other for, for everything like food, for, uh, like tools, like 
this relationship is like so deep and you know um like different different first nations like burn the land to like produce forage for the caribou and then hunt them in a way that's sustainable so like it just shows that like you can live on the landscape in a way that is mutually beneficial and positive and i think we just like also need to remember that like there's just this idea that human beings in their nature are harmful. And I think we really need to break that down uh, because if we believe that, like, how are we going to solve these issues? So yeah, I think 30 by 30 is like one of those examples of like, yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not trying to like recreate our value system and like, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, it's stepping away from the capitalism. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah just finding different ways to operate on the land and like even colonization, like colonization, like obviously and rightfully so has such a bad rap, but like people have also been migrating around the world since the beginning of time to get out of different situations and to find better opportunities to live. So it's just like a model that like lets go of the, where we come from, came from and like embraces where we are and like learning from the people who, have these connections to the land and like creating like new societies, like new ways of thinking and being in relation to one another and the world that we live, that we all share. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, what were some of the shortcomings out of cop? Yeah, (laughs) a lot. Um, (laughs) so when I like, I think, yeah, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, but one of the things I wanted to do is find like industry influence at cop. They were much more, um, sort of cagey about it and less transparent. They wouldn't give me the list of, of companies showing up. Um, but I found crop life was going, do you know who crop life is? Never heard of them. Oh, they're, (laughs) you're going to hate this. They're an international like body that basically advocates on behalf of Monsanto, Bayer and ChemChina, like the world's most powerful pesticide producing companies in the world. Um, and they had a space at cop, like a huge, huge, huge room like 300 like capacity seating whereas like the muskrat collective which is like a group of indigenous youth that are doing amazing amazing work uh were given like a room with like 20 seats to speak in so it's just like the contrast there um but we called them out so we held like a demonstration outside of uh their event dressed as butterflies and bees oh i think i saw some of this on instagram (laughs) yeah uh so i made those costumes at 3 a.m nice uh i was like i could i'm i'm an artist i got this and i got um this like glyphosate suit so we had like a sprayer so he was like the glyphosate applicator so he's like spraying it we had like the sound system of like the sound of the spray and then like uh we like managed to gather like 15 people to do this and like we ended up pulling it off pretty good um the sprayer guy mark you know him uh he managed to spray like one of the head guys of crop life international were they yeah yeah (laughs) good on him i know i like yeah i dragged i dragged him to to clarify which mark like yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i dragged him to it and the best part is like i was initially going to be the sprayer. So I got this like size small, like painter suit. And then I gave it to Mark and then like, so the whole time he just like has this wedgie. And it's like, he's like spraying and it's on all the newspapers. It's funny. That's great. Yeah. 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 So that was good. It was like kind of this fun little, like, I don't know. I like art. I like using art as a way to bring attention to issues. And we just totally bombarded their meeting. Uh, it was such a lame meeting. Like it was just crop life people. I'm like, who are you even doing this for? Like, and, and yeah, 
Would you say, well, Monsanto is now Bayer? Yeah. Bayer. And Chem yeah. China? Yeah. That's kind of like a nice name because at least they're, like, they're getting right to the point of what they do. It's like, <laughs> I know. you know it's China and you know it's chemicals. And it's like, okay. Like, right? Easy. I know. Yeah. Whereas like Bayer, yeah, took over Monsanto just because Monsanto is like associated with like <laughs> the, the worst things we've ever, Agent Orange, PCBs, DDT. Yeah. Glyphosate. Glyphosate. Which we can get into later. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I was going to say crop life at the event, uh, they were worried about target seven. So target seven was the reduction in pesticide use, which would have been amazing. Um, but that got that. Yeah. It didn't make it. It, uh, it, it got changed to reduction in, in, uh, pes- the risks of pesticides. So like, we're going to rely on more like labeling, like if we can label products better. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah, it got changed to reduce the risks of pesticides. Yeah. That's so ambiguous. And that's the point. Yeah. That's what a lot of the targets sort of changed too. It's just like not actual numerical targets. Like another target was like, we want to reduce extinction, but not by how much or by when. Right. So like, it's just reduce extinction. Reduce, yeah. Broad statement. Right. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. That's so interesting to me. Like mm-hmm. that was kind of like one of the takeaways that I saw from it. And like, I was there just like a fraction, like a sliver of the time you compared to you. were there for like five minutes. <laughs> I was there for more than five minutes. Oh, okay. 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 It was a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just, it, was, it felt, it felt short. And it was, yeah. I mean, the grand scheme of things like, yeah, yeah, I think it was like right in the middle of your stint as well. It was the, there at the beginning of the second week. Yeah. But yeah, like amazing event so many cool people there like so inspiring to see all like the activist stuff the indigenous village on the water there like all these amazing speakers and like people with like their heart and soul and like their body like in it you know like just embodying this like being there like you know a lot of people like were self-funded like came out because they wanted to like be able to voice themselves or express their voices but you know and then and then it's just like glass wall and you just can observe the people who are making these decisions on behalf of everybody else, but not engaging with anybody else. They're just acting on behalf of their countries. And it was just this like weird thing where it was like, I don't know. It just, it felt so, um, I don't know. I don't even know the words to describe it. Just big doom, gloomy. Like it felt like, like star Wars empire strikes back kind of vibe where it's like, yeah, like everybody on the streets and like outside in all these tiny halls like has such great thoughts and ideas and feelings and like ways to to implement this change but then like the people actually making the change are totally isolated from that and the only people who are able to input that change are the big paying organizations or people like crop life who are coming in with enough funding and support for the for the event as a whole where they get like a big 200 seat room versus a small little nonprofit coming in with 20 seats like it's so like all these conversations are still swayed by the same kind of corporate entities that dictate our life and laws and like every individual company or every individual country, sorry, are still like they're actively playing roles in like this international delegation of how we decide to live as a species on this planet. Like it's just like at what point, like, is there an escape from it? Like how do you get away from that influence? Yeah, I know. I, I hear you. And I think like, I didn't even realize there was like a whole, well, until like about halfway through, I didn't even realize there was like a full business side of this all. What do you mean? <laughs> like the, I was, I was sitting in like the nature pavilion and like you said, like you're, you're just around so many people with so many amazing ideas and we're going to, you know, the events that are like held, holding like 
space for actual solutions to, to be thought of. And you're feeling the grief, you're feeling the loss, you're, but you're feeling solidarity. And I think sharing grief also is like really healing. And then you can like, you know, find the power to like keep going forward with that. But so I'm in this like deep state of just like so much overwhelming feelings of like, this is like, we're all here fighting for something so much bigger than us. And then these like two business guys like sit down behind me and they just start having a conversation about like how this can be great for their business. And it just like, I was like, wait, wait, what? Like, I was like, there's like some other like motive for being here. I'm so confused. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just like naive of me, but I was just feeling a type of way on that day. And it, it just like, yeah, I mean, like you just have the business like entities that were also just like there. And I was like, oh, I totally forgot that that was the thing. And yeah, I mean, I felt the same. There's like so many good solutions and so many people just, yeah, to, to, like bringing so much truth uh, to to these topics that just like then, yeah, there's, it just doesn't. It there's just no doesn't way cross to get over. through. Yeah. And that's kind of it. It's like all of these like. Like you'd think that like you would want to design a world where you're listening to the people who actually care and are invested in this and like, like, you know, emotionally, physically impacted by these decisions. But no, like money trumps all. That's kind of it. And that's like really disappointing thing to say. When you said when you were saying that there was a business side of it, I, my initial thought was like, what, like the coffee stands in there? Cause those, they made a mint in there. It was like five dollars oh a gosh. coffee, and like in the lines, like through the door, you're like, <laughs> it's not even good coffee. That's so They're just raking it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw. I got um, kind of pitched this like water product. I don't even know what the guy was selling, but it was just like you know, like when you're like getting fronted by like a used car salesman, mm -hmm. and he's just like, oh, we've got this product this solution. Oh, you were at river restoration? Let me tell you about this water thing. And we're just like, oh God. And it was like yeah. 10 minutes and we were just like, yeah. oh, oh, we gotta go. And like just fully like yeah. found a way to snuck out of this conversation, but it was just so slimy and greasy. Yeah. And it was like, you're not, like what you're suggesting isn't like a real like real solution for big it's like you're just like seeing this little niche where you can like make a lot of money right now if you get some you know angel investors and sway people with the right greenwashed marketing and oh yeah, yeah you can I make some real money here and it's like oh my god I just know. get out of here how'd you get here how'd you get in yeah like who let you in and that's yeah that's just it is like people like are still seeing this not as like the crisis it is like this is like gonna directly affect every single living thing on this planet they're like Hey, this is a great business opportunity. And I just like, ah. <laughs> and, and like, that is to say that like within that business opportunity, I think there are and can be some opportunity for people to really create change within like the private sector and like use business as a force for good. Um, unfortunately, I just don't think you see it all too often. And when it is, it's usually like shouted over and by like the people who don't have like good intentions, but have deeper pockets, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's not to say that like, yeah, businesses can't ever operate in a way that is better. Uh, but yeah, I just didn't think that they should have like a space at like the negotiating part of it. And, and like you said, also, I think in our like capitalist, um, well, late stage capitalist economy, uh, the companies that actually are trying to do better won't like make it because <laughs> they, you know, they can't compete in this capitalist marketplace when, um, they're, they're choosing to do, to, to, to have better practices. So, yeah, it's like a race to the bottom. Right. Yeah. It is, it is really interesting. Like, 
I just think about it a lot with like forestry industry reform and like even going through and managing second growth forest. Like, so the people on who are watching this can't see, but we're looking at this like second growth forest that to my knowledge was all reseeded naturally, um, which is, I don't know, is what it is. I think it was logged like maybe 30, 40 years ago. Um, and, but like it's tight. There's like not a lot of understory. There's not a lot of anything happening. It's like really tight canopy. And like, this is like what a majority of forests all around BC look like, regardless of this like specific biogeoclimatic zone. Like all these forests, whether they're replanted or reseeded naturally, kind of have this like really tight early successional stage that creates all sorts of different problems with hydrology and with fire, like and and lack of um, diversity for all sorts of wildlife. Um, but the cost to go in and like do the restoration efforts it would take in order to help this forest like succeed to the next level, you know, like coming in thin, uh, replant some different like species of, of shrubs and huckleberries in the understory to kind of create that diversity and leaving like standing dead snags and all these old growth characteristics. Like that's a ton of money that like that the logging companies didn't have to account for or didn't have to pay for at the time because they didn't know about that, quote unquote, they didn't know, they didn't care about it. Um, and then, so now it's like, how do you make a business that does this? Like, yeah. what, what are yeah, you exactly. selling? Like, what are you buying? Like, yeah. how do you make money? Yeah. And like the amount of money it requires, like across the province, mm -hmm. that's like, what, yeah. 60 million hectares? It's like, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like... Yeah. yeah, it's a really daunting issue because it's like everybody's trying to talk about like how to reform logging and industry and how to like, f uh, you know, fireproof our ecosystems and how to retain water and, and soil function and everything like all these different things that, and biodiversity. Like how are we going to retain biodiversity? But like that still requires like a very active, engaged part of the human species with these ecosystems because we've always been active parts of these ecosystems. I feel like people are just like. I don't know if there's no way to make money at it, then they're just like bowing out. Yeah. And like, we need to get over that hurdle of like capitalism and just, and do it because it's the right thing to do. And not because you're going to be able to, I don't know, buy a escalate with spinner rims on it. I don't know. Right. As if people I mean, still do that. I don't know. Do, yeah. The spinner rims. I haven't seen those in so long. Um, yeah. That I just aged myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did. Early 2000s. You really That's did. Quote, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think like, if we can if we think about like who benefits from the cert like the specific system that, that we're in right now especially with like logging like we're not even we don't even have a lot of jobs in logging anymore like the the amount of trees that we've logged has has kind of varied but mostly gone up right but the amount of jobs we've had in the logging industry has only gone down so it's like it's not really working for jobs either but we're logging more trees so it's also not working for biodiversity who is it working for? It's literally working for the shareholders and the CEOs. So it's like there's they're taking this value, this like monetary value from a forest and just like funneling it to a select few people where I think that like if we really try to focus on to, on like equity, building in equity into our forest policies where it's like if you are going to log in a place like the profits from that logging goes back to the community as much as it can to fund like a restorative economy and just yeah i mean i think so many solutions come from um just like more locally owned companies making decisions like a ceo from florida shouldn't be making a decision about a forest he's never going to step foot in over here and i don't know exactly yeah it's all the shareholder the shareholder thing it's it's extraction 
and just extracting the monetary value from these resources resources quote unquote these areas without having to having to have any accountability to them in the future um which speaking of is a great transition to the second topic you wanted to talk about which is glyphosate yeah because glyphosate is a big thing sprayed all over by um you know the forest industry particularly here in bc um and it's just funny, like uh, back to the jobs thing, like, you know, I've read a, a thing from uh, the Truck Loggers Association talking about how it's, it's a great new breach of technology. They're going to replace tree planters with drones. And I'm like, <laughs> the tree planters are already the lowest paid people oh, in the industry yeah. and you're going to replace them with drones? Please, no. And then to the same point, you have like, you know, instead of having people go through manually with brush saws and stuff like trimming back trees, you're spraying glyphosate over the whole province. Yeah. Like, I think, I think when a company proposes a plan, it, it should be like prioritized based on how many jobs it can create. Like that automation of like tree planters, like should just be fundamentally just like, no, no, like just because why, why would we do that? Like, I feel like the whole reason, I mean, a large reason lately I f- that we like extract so much is in the name of jobs. So, so we just need to resist that type of stuff and just be like, that doesn't work for our communities actually. Um, yeah. Glyphosate. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even within that though, I just want to make a asterisk that like all of these technological solutions are made in the name of jobs. It's just like, what kind of jobs do you want to create? It's like, if they're flown by drones, that's like remote pilots or people. It's like, a, it's very tech jobs thing. And it's like, we'll create 50 jobs with this new thing. But what they're not telling you is about all the other people that are going to be laid off. Right. From it. Totally. So it's like, yeah, yeah. that's cool. And then, and then the pushing that, that through, you know, the narrative, like, yeah. so it's all like, yeah, again, in the nuance of like the broader system, but yeah, glyphosate's pretty, pretty yeah. fucked. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna try to censor myself to and use a better word, word, but you there are some some words that just encompass everything. And- oh no, it's so bad. I was I was writing a paper on it, and I actually just like threw myself into like such a sadness learning like the roots of glyphosate how it got approved it's just like scandal after scandal like manufacturing consent for this product that is so toxic. Um, it kills three kingdoms of life so bacteria um plants and fungi so when you kill off three out of the five kingdoms of life in an ecosystem like that's gonna have impacts big ones um and so yeah it's basically used by logging companies so after they cut in a forest they're not done uh companies want to come back and replant in order to log again in the future. Um, and in BC, it's actually like legally required that they do this. It's called a free to grow policy where they want to make sure that like the cash conifer species. So like um, the harvestable species that is most profitable to logging companies regrow. So they'll kill off all the other like native shrubs um, so that it's the, yeah, that the trees are free to grow. So they'll literally like spray glyphosate from like helicopters. Um, there's like been folks out in the forest like like videoing and like seeing this like chemical being sprayed over the landscape just like they did ddt in the 50s yeah so monsanto yeah monsanto created ddt in the fifth or using it in the 50s um they used it a lot on uh 
uh, Namgi's territory on Vancouver Island. Rachel Carson actually like cited the impacts of it in her book. Um, and then Silent Spring, great book oh, for those gosh. who haven't read it. Yeah, <laughs> get to it. Um, yeah, and then so now Monsanto is back in Bayer's clothing uh, with glyphosate. Uh, yeah, on hand, and they're spraying all over Vancouver Island plants too. So well, and all over the rest of BC, like yeah. especially up in northern BC, it happens all yeah, the time. Yeah, totally, all over Canada, except for Quebec, who banned it. All over the world, really. Yeah, and like Washington and Oregon, like it's really bad down there. I read a thing that, like, oh, sorry for the Oregonites uh, who are are hearing this but i read a thing a while ago that apparently short sands beach in oregon which is like a famous surf spot um because of all the logging that happens in the surrounding hillsides and all the glyphosate that's sprayed that's actually like one of the most toxic beaches to surf in in oregon maybe even like the whole kind of pacific northwest but it's like on an average sunny you know august day like there will be cars lined up the like all up the highway and you've got to walk in it's like so popular and nobody knows that it's just like all the glyphosate draining out through that that little river mouth there. Uh, and that, like, and it just, yeah, it happens, like, it's just not transparent. And then these companies, it, it, I think the the crux of it for me is that, like, we're, like, the reason it's used in forestry is literally just for corporate profits. Like, that, and, like, the trade-off of, like, the, po- the poisoning of, like, people and animals and plants and how it just, I mean, it, like, destroys the biodiversity in an area it's just well and and corporate profits on such a short time scale yeah. is the thing because it's like what they're really doing is like taking these natural patterns of succession where you would get like um alders and a bunch of deciduous trees coming in and like revitalizing the soil after disturbance and they're just getting rid of those so they can grow conifers faster but conifers take a ton of nitrogen from the soil that they don't actually put back into the soil what does put that back in is all the lichen that like lichen fungi that the fungi um, sharing yeah you know, sharing the nitrogen that the glyphosate yeah, kills that the glyphosate kills and the leaves yeah. from alders those first generational successors that put nitrogen back into the soil so it's just like you're running that to the bottom too where it's like you're not only depleting the nutrients within these forest ecosystems within the soils just to try to like get these conifers planted sooner growing sooner so that you can harvest them sooner it's basically yeah it, like you said it's like on the shortest time scale like they they will they will go back to a block that's been sprayed and see like okay in five years there's like a little like more growth but like over the long term what we're finding is like they don't grow back um like healthy and then there's a lot of die-off so a lot of the blocks that are supposed to be meet free to grow requirements in bc aren't meeting it because we're learning that actually ecosystems need like fungi they need like alders fixing nitrogen um they need like the native plant biodiversity in the beginning to set the stage to become like that healthy forest in the future yeah Yeah, i mean it just boggles my mind that you can cut a three thousand year old forest down and expect to grow the same quality of wood and trees and everything in 70 years if you if you give it 70 years it boggles my mind i think it just also boggles my mind that like like the impact of that company is just like forever now on the land. Like they, 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 they take the biggest trees and then they like, they come back for more and they're like noxious imprint on the land is just like everlasting and it's never enough. <laughs> it's never enough. Yeah. The, the scariest thing to me about glyphosate. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I want to guess the scariest thing. The, well, the, the, like, yeah, there's obviously like cases where they've like seen, things in the way can alter or uh, 
have adverse health effects like the people now but like one of the things that they've been studying like more and more especially with mice because mice have shorter lifespans so you can see this impact um, is that glyphosate has relatively little impact on the generation that it's sprayed on the f0 generation but it compounds as you go down so like the f1 f2 f3 generation they found has like so you're basically your grandchildren has like the highest levels of like risks for all sorts of like liver kidney diseases cancers like all sorts of different things because of glyphosate that was used on their grandparents and like we obviously don't have those studies yet um, with humans because humans live like 60 70 years on average and it just kind of started like one generation ago so we're still like the f like we would be the f1 generation which is nuts to think about like Like the impact is going to have, like, even if we stop using it tomorrow, the impact it's going to have on everybody, everything, like, it's not just the forest, like it's sprayed on, like, if you go to a grocery store and you buy fruit, you buy anything there that's not organic, like, and even some of the organic stuff gets sprayed from time to time to save a crop. Like, so it's, it's literally everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And we have no idea what it's going to do to our kids. And we're still, and because there's that shortcoming in how you make something legal and able to be used within like our policy framework for getting chemicals like okayed to be used, you know, because of, because of that shortcoming there and that lack of studying, it's just like, we're just dooming our future generations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the EPA, when it got approved in the U S the study that it got approved on turned out to be fraudulent. Really? Yeah. The, the people who, the scientists that were part of that study actually ended up doing jail time. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. This is like 50s, 60s. Yeah. Yeah. 50s. And this is, um, so, so that happened. Right. And then the U S approved glyphosate for use roundup became a thing. Um, and then, uh, there, there's like an international agency that like studies the toxicity of, I'm blanking on the name right now, but they came, uh, Iraq. I know the acronym. Mm-hmm. How do you spell that? I- I-A-R-C. Iraq. Yeah. They came up with a report that like finally was like, you know, we're going to like look into this glyphosate thing. This was in 2015. They were like, okay, yeah, it's a probable carcinogen. Okay. Um, can't Health Canada later that like later that year ended up approving glyphosate for use again without considering that new finding that it's a probable carcinogen and relying on the fraudulent studies that were done uh, by the U.S. uh, EPA in the the beginning. Really? Yeah. It's a really, really like this is why I got into this like depression because I was like, like the history of glyphosate and how it was approved was is just like. Yeah, like collusion, like um, ghost, like Monsanto would like ghost write articles. Um, you got like, yeah, the scientists that like end up going to jail over this study that's still being used to like allow it. And it's just like our laws just suck. Like you should <laughs> you should have to be able to prove something is safe before it can be used. Like it shouldn't be like uncertainty means yes. And like, it's not even like it was uncertainty, a probable carcinogen. You have over 600,000 court cases in the U.S. from people who have developed cancer after spraying glyphosate. Like, it's incredibly toxic to like your skin, like, like if you're a sprayer, but then like it also kills all the bacteria and in your body. So people say glyphosate doesn't impact, impact animals, but like what makes a healthy like gut bacteria? Yeah. And so glyphosate that we're eating is impacting our gut and who knows the impacts that's having on us so yeah yeah all sorts of issues with like 
Uh, yeah, I mean, gut digestion. Like, I know so many people that have gut and health problems like that. Yeah, my stomach um, never feels good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and even bigger things. Like, I've, I don't know if it's a. I haven't read any studies on it or anything. I don't know what it is, but like, I feel like at least in my personal life, I've known or heard about like far more people getting like colon cancer than like was ever a normal thing growing up. And I, and like, I like, ju I just saw like a, a thing for that yeah. on, in my elevator. Really? <laughs> yeah. There's like, there's like news, I don't know, TV thing, but it was saying that, like, how like colon cancer is like, on the rise. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so it is. Yeah. I, there is something in, yeah. in, in Canada and the U.S., Interesting. Yeah. And like you would think that that might be associated with like the food we're eating, especially like, again, like a generation down the line. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's just. And so, yeah, I'm uh, gearing up for a campaign to stop some of it spraying, though. So I got my hands on some glyphosate maps. So this is so this is one of the things about the law. There's like this pest management plan. It's a five year plan that forestry companies have to. Uh, create that basically gives a broad area of the area like of their where they're gonna spray so it's like I mean for instance like it's it's by TFL so TFL 47 is just like this massive area and they just like are like hey we're gonna spray somewhere in this area for the next five years and then they're given 30 days to like consult like indigenous nations and the public 30 days before spraying N no 30 days there's just a 30-day consultation window okay. for okay. a five-year pest management plan. Okay, gotcha. If the company reaches out to a nation and they don't, and they try three times, and they don't reply in three times, and it doesn't say like who in the, like a community member, like a council, a chief, a hereditary, like it doesn't say who. The law is very, very like vague. It just says you have to try to reach out to like impacted First Nation three times. If they don't reply, then that's like consent. Okay, so, or, yeah, so if they don't reply, that's, it's fine. And then, okay, so then they have 30 days to consult on a five-year plan. Uh, there's no, like, pathway to no. So there's no pathway to, like, don't do that. You can't spray here. Like, there's no, like, if they say this, then this. It's all just, like, try to figure it out. Anyway, so a lot of these pest management plans get approved without the nation even knowing. Um and then every year from then on, there's a thing called notice of intent to treat. And that is like the specific mapped cut blocks. Like here's where we're spraying. Here's where we're spraying. And those maps are not accessible to the public or to nations if they ask for them. Really? Like the, co the company doesn't have to provide those not maps. Not even if they ask. Not even if they ask. Wow. Unless they, uh, unless they made that like a requirement in the five-year pest management plan, which a lot of nations like don't know to do like they don't know to be like oh we have to say this so so getting the getting our hands on maps of where they're going to split spray has been really hard but we managed to get some for tfl 47 so they're going to go in and they're going to spray uh all over uh montagila territory um over 500 cut blocks uh yeah so we're going to go try to stop that when does all that taking place um they have to give us, well, so they sent the maps to the government and then after they send the maps to the government, they have 21 days to begin spraying. Mm. So it could start as early as March 17th. Wild. Yeah. That's in like a week. Yeah. 
So I gotta get going. <laughs> Ten days, I gotta yeah. go. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get out to the territory before it sprays, and then we can do kind of like a before. Like hopefully we can stop the spray, but if not, we want to sort of like look at the traditional like uh, medicine and food plants that are there, and see what's on the line. There's also. A man who has a trap line that goes right through the cup blocks as well. That's going to be sprayed. There's salmon bearing streams all around. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, and that's another thing too, like the impact of, of glyphosate on benthic invertebrates and stuff in those streams that juvenile and yeah, juvenile salmon rely on to exist. Um, that's crazy. Like the last podcast episode I did was with this lovely woman, Sandy Ward um, from the Lil Watt Nation. Um, and we talked about that idea of consent and like to her like she says it in that episode i was just thinking about that like like if you don't get a reply that's a no like that like that is what the answer is it's like even if you keep replying like three times and you don't get a reply for that them to interpret that as consent is just so again ass backwards (laughs) it's like i know and like yeah the bc government you know they're implementing undrip right uh and an undrip it says like free prior and informed consent and free is like I don't know. I mean, yeah, free is like you, you're <sighs> not under duress. Like. Yeah. And a lot of the nations like don't have so, like, do you know how many out like project like um, projects come to the table? Like so many. So free should be, I think, like giving like money, like ha- like having the government like give money so that a nation can actually take the time it's and and have resources needed to actually assess a project before it happens prior means what it means like way before and then informed like you have all the information you need to make the decision and so um yeah that is not three times you email no. like a what happens if the email is just like not being yeah, checked yeah just bouncing <laughs> like yeah that's ridiculous and bouncing. in what time frame um you know like because yeah. like that's like all these things like I mean, even going back to the glyphosate being um, tested and found that it's not doing harm, quote unquote, um, you know, like, again, like, what are the parameters we're setting around these testing, these tests? It's like, oh, like glyphosate after being on your skin, like it's fine a week later. It's like, okay, well, how about a year? How about, how about 10 years? And then, and then again, back to the generational thing. It's like, how do we not take like the full existence of it into account you know like we're so just like again those shorter time scales people are just trying to make money as while they're here as quick as they can but it's just you know when like i'd like to think that everybody lives on this planet and like you know especially as you get older everybody says they do it for the kids and it's like you know i'm trying to create a better world for our kids you know i'm trying to give my kids opportunities put them through college all this stuff it's like at what point do you actually just stop and reflect on the world you're actually leaving your kids and being like yeah, that's cool. You got them a car when they turn 16 and can drive and you're going to put them through college. But like, there's not going to be any, they die of colon cancer at 30 because of all the glyphosate you sprayed. Like, what's the point? I know. I know. That's a, that's a disconnect. Cause I feel that too. I like, I worked in Fort Mac for a long time and with a lot of folks that worked in the, in the oil sands and like, um, yeah, that was like, they're like, I don't want to be doing this, but like, I'm doing this. Cause like my family, like I got a family to take care of. And I'm like, I get that. Like, I, I, you know, like that's gotta be something that is like your priority, but 
more than like more than that like they they need a safe future and like we are just creating such an uncertain future and well, yeah and and in defense of like those people working like those jobs like even individual loggers like i i get the fact that it's a job and you need to support your family like i think the accountability should fall up on like the higher ups and and the legal structure that allows things like this to happen that 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 degrades the the better good the betterment of like society as a whole um because like yeah everybody's just kind of working a job and doing what they need to do to survive like i get that it's not on their hands it's like they're just in a system that's like totally fucked and corrupt like we need to fix the system totally at the top like the only like the only jobs that could like support you know a three to five person family are like usually jobs that are exploiting the environment like and that's an issue like where's the money going the money is going to like a small small fraction of people like we got to fix that equity yeah <laughs> redistribution of wealth yeah <laughs> i know there's so many so many things to go on about i know yeah <laughs> yeah anyway mm-hmm. um so where can people go to find out about these campaigns and the maps and stuff you got going on yeah um wildernesscommittee.org if uh you still use a computer if you're only on your cell phone uh instagram i guess instagram yeah i would go to our instagram um but like, which is wild news, well, at, yeah, wildernews, which is like goodness, wilderness, been, but with I would have been fired. The first S turned into a W. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's yeah. a clever one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wildernews, yeah. uh, wildernesscommittee.org. Yeah. I guess I also just want to say, like, I don't know. I I think it's like pretty overwhelming for like listeners to feel empowered that like they can make a change. Um. But I do want to say that like. I don't know. I I definitely feel a change coming. I think the BC government especially is like more vulnerable to um to like the environment like environmental um uh like movements right now. Like I I can I I know that we have a chance to really make change and we've like done that before like based on people signing up and like doing our call to actions we've stopped coal mines. We've stopped logging in caribou habitat. We've got Ar- Argonaut Creek protected like I get like the burnout of just like sending an email, but sometimes it works and yeah. And and making a a phone call. I find phone calls to be really like not easy, but like easier because then you can just like, usually it's a person that picks up. If if you're leaving a message, that's awkward. I hate doing that. But then you can like usually talk to the person and like they're usually like, you know, if they're answering an MP's phone, like they're pretty, you know, open to having dialogue and you can really get messages through there where you're talking to humans and not just sending off an email into the void. Yeah. And then you can even like if you develop a relationship with your like MP, they can like bring issues to the house. Like it can happen. Um, And I I get. Yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to to say that I get the can seem very pointless, but um, collectively we've all achieved such amazing wins. And like, I mean, we obviously have so much more to do, but yeah. I think it's important to recognize those and address those, Mm -hmm. address the wins. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. (laughs) This is a tangent, but I was thinking about the, um, I was thinking about the glyphosate thing. Because I told you, like, that's the, the scariest thing to me. Um, I've recently been watching uh, Handmaid's Tale. Oh, man. A few <laughs> years too late. I know. I, I can't. It's too it's much. It's yeah. <laughs> But what's crazy to me, like the premise of it, for those who don't know, <laughs> you're living under a rock, and this is the first time you've heard of Handmaid's Tale. Um, you know, it's like people in like the near future slash now all of a sudden can't have children. Yeah. And, 
you know, then you think about like the generational impact of a thing like glyphosate or maybe even something that we aren't even aware of yet. That's like impacting us. It's like that actually like it seems like something that could happen. I don't know. Mm. No, I, love, it does. I love sci-fi because sci-fi always takes like these like really um, like just just interesting looks at like the reality we live in. And I think that can be really impactful for sharing a story. Um, so when you like consider that and you consider like the rise of like some radical conservatism, like in the States, especially, and even here in Canada, and you see that show and the way that like women are oppressed and it's just like, you're like, man, like. I could see it happening. I know. It's yeah. scary. It's not far off. Yeah, I know. It's not. I, <laughs> I mean, like, let's hope, let's hope not. Um, but well, that's where it takes people to continue to be engaged to prevent yeah. Handmaid's Tale from coming true. That's it. That's all we're fighting yeah. for is to yeah. not have Handmaid's Tale yeah. come. <laughs> Take Please. action if you don't want to live in Handmaid's yeah. Tale. No. Yeah. Um. So, have you seen like the 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 like attack or like the like public worry about like fungi? Since like The Last of Us. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've heard of this Last of Us show. Yeah, I've I saw one episode. I think it was the third episode because it's this really Weird place beautiful. To start. <laughs> my yeah, my brother showed it to me. Okay. It's this really beautiful love story about like these two gay guys who fall in in love at the end, like in mm. the end of the world, and mm. they like grow to old age and die together, and it's mm. beautiful. Yeah, it's okay. amazing. Right. Worth I a watch. I haven't got there. Shit. Yeah, but. there's no there's not a single fungi zombie in it. Oh yeah, great. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I, yeah, let's prevent the handmade sale to, together. Yeah. yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks. Thanks for um, bearing the cold with me. <laughs> the trees are in the sun. That must be nice. Yeah. Next time How we should go there, up there. Dougie? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dougie. You should do a podcast in a tree. I will put that on my list. You should do that. That would be amazing. Yeah. I have to figure out some technical hurdles there. Marble Mirlet. It could be about that Marble Mirlet. Cool. Yeah. yeah, or like it. Yeah, that's awesome. So Charlotte totally forgot to mention this during our conversation, but wanted me to let you all know that BC is currently working on biodiversity legislation under the old Growth Strategic Review, and that Wilderness Committee is working to make sure that legislation ensures protection for species and their habitat, and that biodiversity targets are put into law. So you can learn more about all of this, glyphosate, and find ways to get involved by visiting wildernesscommittee.org or visiting at Wildernews on Instagram. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, thanks to everyone who supports Nuri About Nature on Patreon, Charlotte would like to give this very first podcast donation to Indigenous Climate Action, which is an Indigenous-led organization guided by a diverse group of Indigenous knowledge keepers, water protectors, and land defenders from communities and regions all across the country. They're doing some really great, powerful work that you can learn more about at IndigenousClimateAction.com, and I'm stoked to help support that cause through this platform here. It's been pretty wild and absolutely amazing to watch support for Nerdy Mount Nature grow so much over the past few months. I'm super appreciative to each and every one of you. Y'all are the best. I'm so stoked to finally be at a point when I can give a little bit back, but I would also like to remind all of you that this whole project is currently just a one-man band. I do all the research, shooting, organizing, editing, literally all of it myself, and it gets pretty dang exhausting at times. I would love to get to a point when I can actually afford to hire somebody for some assistance here so I can continue to grow the project to educate and inspire more of y'all. So if you're enjoying this podcast and all the fun vids I create all over social media, you can help support their production by joining the Patreon family at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature for a dollar a month or more. And all of that goes directly back into helping give me the stability to make all this continue to happen. If you're not able to support on Patreon, that's no worries at all. You can help support this project by liking, sharing, commenting on social media, 
or wherever you're listening to this podcast and by giving me a good rating so that more and more folks can get involved. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I am trying to evolve this podcast a bit and making donations for each episode is part of that. But I'm also trying to find ways to involve all of you just a little bit more. You know, I currently have a post on my Patreon page where supporters can ask me questions and then I'll answer them here on the podcast. And not many of you have used this little perk recently, but I would love to address any of your burning nature questions head on. So jump on there if you've got them. Then I've also been playing with the idea of trying to have something consistent to wrap up each episode, whether that be you know me telling you a random fun fact that I recently learned or sharing a random story with you, maybe a tidbit from my personal life or a game or something. I don't know. I don't know what you want, but I'm open to any and all ideas. So if you're a Patreon member, I'll have a post there where you can submit ideas or themes or games or whatever you want there, and we can all chat about it on the Patreon Discord group as well. You know, I'm just looking for ways to get you all involved a little bit more and make this whole thing fun, so come at me with whatever ideas you may have. And now, to wrap things up, I'm going to leave you with a recent fun fact that I just learned, not related to anything we've talked about today, okay? So... Did you know that of all recorded attacks and fatalities by cougars in North America, 25% of them are on Vancouver Island? See, I live on Vancouver Island, and that is absolutely terrifying to me. Cougars scare the absolute piss out of me, and I had no idea the number of attacks was that high around here. So, yeah, terrifying. And it hasn't made for the most enjoyable nature walks around dusk lately either, so that's fun. Anyways, thanks again, as always, for tuning into this episode. It's great having you here, and I'll see you all again in a couple weeks with another new one. Until then, take it easy. 